This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Patrick LaHue from BottleCutting.com revealed how he built a $3 million business and only works four hours a day. In this episode, you'll learn how two entrepreneurs get free publicity by being thought leaders and talking about the future of their industry. In this episode, you'll learn how to become a thought leader and how to use it to get free publicity, how to drive traffic from Instagram and Snapchat to your store, and how to find and work with influencers on YouTube. Today, I'm joined by Christine Chang and Sarah Lee from GlowRecipe.com. That's G-L-O-W-R-E-C-I-P-E.com. Glow Recipe sells natural beauty products from Korea. It was started in 2014 and based out of New York City. Welcome, Christine and Sarah. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, excited to have you guys on. So tell us a little bit more about the store and what are some of the most popular products that, uh, that you sell? Yeah, of course. So we started Glow Recipe in November of 2014, and our mission was to really bring over these great natural Korean beauty products that we knew had so much potential in the U.S. And to give you a little bit of background, Sarah and I come from a 10-plus year beauty background each, so combined 20 years in product development and marketing. So we've been working with Korean manufacturers and seeing the Korean beauty trends, but we felt that what was coming over to the States was just very one-sided and a little bit too promotional-driven, a little bit too packaging-driven. And we knew that there was a lot more efficacy out there that could be shared with U.S. women. So that was the premise for us starting our business. And the beauty background has been incredibly helpful to leverage for curation and making sure that the brands that we come over are truly vetted for a global audience. Very cool. Yeah. So I think um, there are other listeners out there that are that were in similar situations as, as you two, where they have experience because they're working uh, for an employer, a nine to five in a particular industry, and then they decide that the, with their experience and their entrepreneurial aspirations, they decide to go into business in the same industry. Was it an issue with your with your employer at the time when you made that switch, or like what was the I guess the situation? What was the transition like from working in the industry? Um, for an employer now starting business for yourself? It was not an issue at all, actually, because, you know, we weren't really thinking about this for a long time. We saw an opportunity and we kind of jumped into it. Mm. Um, and it was really right after we quit our jobs. So everything just happened in a very quick period of time. And um, it all happened as soon as Christine and I just traveled to Korea and we saw this humongous opportunity that we could bring over to the States. And we started our business right away. Mm, very so, cool. Yeah. So how did you, so you, you saw that there was this opportunity that uh, of the Korean products that were not in the U.S. or uh, were here, but like you're saying, they were branded the, the way that you guys didn't like or you felt like you could have done a better job. What was the, I guess, the very first step? You knew that there was this opportunity. How did you make steps towards turning it into an actual business? Yeah, like we said, we just went to Korea and we took a huge beauty tour around the city. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, but Korea has beauty stores almost at every street corner, kind of like Starbucks of New York, 
where you could see the trend, you could see what's happening, what Korean women are obsessed about. And then we, of course, met a bunch of vendors while we were there. Um, and we, we just talked to them about our opportunity, the experience that we have in the States and what potential we could bring to their business. And a lot of them um, signed contracts right away with us. And that's how it started. Wow. So were you just using like your savings? Like how did you, how were you able to get that first, I guess, batch of inventory uh, over back over to the U.S. to, to sell it? So we've been bootstrapping from the beginning. We used a small portion of our savings each. Um, and then we actually broke even in three months. So for us, the investment was quickly recouped. And then since then, we've been profitable. That's amazing. So brought the, the, the initial batch over, uh, started selling it. What were some ways for, for you to get your very first uh, customers? How were you able to spread like, awareness of, of your, new, your new store? So for us, we knew that press would be vital, especially for the beauty industry, for to a new product or a new category to get the word out. That being said, beauty press is extremely saturated, as you can imagine. There's so many new beauty brands, indie beauty brands coming out every month, and each are fighting to have their share of voice. So for us, um, our marketing and kind of product development background has really came in handy because we didn't try to push product when we spoke with editors. We spoke in bigger terms of trends or different categories that we thought would have meaning. So a good example of something that we first brought over was the trend of fermentation. And fermentation, you might think, is something that applies to your wine or your cheese, but in Korea, it's something that's very, it's very widespread in skincare now, and it's a huge trend. And we knew that this angle of fermenting your products, not only because it's interesting, but because it actually has an impact on efficacy, the fermentation process helps to break down ingredients for better absorption and whatnot. So that story really resonated with editors and helped gain us our first piece of press in a major outlet. That's awesome. So you mentioned that, uh, or you didn't mention this, but uh, you know, when you think of, uh, it sounds like when you went over the career, you saw the future of uh, skincare in the U.S. Was this kind of lag in the U.S. an issue where you saw that Korea was you know, so far ahead or they had different trends? And then how are you able to, I guess, catch your market up, the one in the U.S., up to, the, I guess, the same speed or same, you know, same cadence as, as uh, the Korean market? Um, we had several perspectives on this. Um, one, you know, we were global marketers or marketers that were working in the American market. And we were always looking at Korea for the latest advanced technology when it comes to skincare, especially. So there were some products that global companies have actually adapted and taken, you know, the inspiration from the Korean technologies and, you know, taken the category that were big in Korea, for example, the BB creams or cushion compacts. So we knew that Korea had a huge impact in terms of you know, R&D and, and new um, creative ideas and concepts. Secondly, from a consumer perspective, um, you know, we were sort of the Korean beauty ambassadors naturally because whenever we traveled back to Korea, you know, for personal reasons, we came back with suitcases packed with Korean sheet masks and new products and everyone just jumped in to, to get a taste of it. So we knew that there was a lot of interest and that the skincare market in the U.S. was also evolving where people were just more, more genuinely more interested in trying new things and, and looking for better quality products in general. So we saw a huge opportunity in so many different aspects. 
and we decided that that was where we could play um, a huge role because we have this bilingual, bicultural experience and backgrounds, and you know we have connections in Korea where we could leverage and bring over brands that we thought could be huge in the states. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. So I want to jump back real quick to the to the way that you approach the press. So you were saying that instead of just pushing your products or pushing your brand, you did you take more of a I guess an educational perspective on it, where you wanted to teach about the trends and the technology in this in this space. Like, how were you exactly pitching? What was the angle when you reached out to to the uh, publications? So I think it did help that Korean beauty was just starting to trend at the time and editors were more aware that there was a lot of innovation coming from Korean beauty. That being said, there wasn't a lot of understanding around what that really meant. I think the focus at the time was around cutesy packaging or, you know, kind of one-time use items that were a little bit more kitsch. And that has its own value, but we knew that there was a bigger efficacy story that would help this become more than a temporary trend. So editors, naturally, especially beauty editors, have a lot of fatigue around new brands and new products because they get pitched hundreds of times a day with different things. So for them to, for us to be able to present to them what we thought would be the future of beauty and what would be the kind of next trends influencing the U.S. market, that was really appealing to them. And we could say that with confidence because a great example from a few years back is actually BB cream. And BB cream was one of those categories that didn't exist in the U.S. It was non-existent. It came over from Korea and then suddenly exploded because not only were there Korean brands, but U.S. brands each doing their own take of the BB cream. And this created this $200 million category overnight almost. So having that precedence, we were able to say that, look, this is the next trend that we think is going to come from Korea to the U.S. and really help U.S. women approach skincare differently. That being said, we couldn't just bring over every single trend we were seeing. There was a lot of curation in that process to make sure that the trends we were presenting were really relevant for the audience here. Yeah, I like that angle. I think it can be applied to any other industry where most publications, they want to be first, or they want to be the first ones to talk about new technology, the first ones to talk about new trends. And if you can't approach them with a story like that, it sounds like it makes it a lot easier to, to pitch your story and pitch your your products rather than just, you know, talking about what exists today, you know, give them almost a leg up and give them, um, make their job easier, essentially, as a, as, a, as a publication by helping them out with a story about what's coming in the future. I think that's a great approach. And I haven't heard when anyone talk about that way, but I think um, it makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, so I want to talk about, um, you know, obviously you, you, you have a partnership. Um, not many guests on the podcast come on with a, uh, a partnership. So talk to, talk to us, talk, talk to us about the different uh, roles that, that you play at the, the company. Um, yeah, so I think, first of all, just the partnership itself has been tremendously supportive, like helpful for us because, you know, there's two people that are super driven, have similar backgrounds, but have, you know, different advantages and strengths that we can complement each other. And also, um, you know, when you're starting off stra- uh, fresh and you're, you know, sometimes you're just learning as you go, it's just very supportive to have someone, you know, in your team and to talk to. Um, in terms of roles, we pretty much do a lot of things together, but the biggest advantage of having a partner like this is, is that we have to travel a lot for business. So when somebody's 
um, in Korea, for example, and you know I am in New York, then I run the business in New York and vice versa. And then Christine would be in Korea, just you know bringing new businesses or meeting new people there to make sure that we have this relationship going, um, and vice versa. So overall, roles are pretty much overlapped, but because we travel so much, we take turns in doing that. And so there's just, you know, not a huge gap in between travels. Makes sense. So I think, uh, you know, others out there that are thinking about starting a business for the first time, they want to consider at least uh, partnering with somebody else. How do you, based on your experiences, how do you know if someone can be a good partner for, for you and your business? I think, yeah, I think the most important thing is um, trust. I think what worked for us is, you know, we knew each other for more than 10 years, actually. We met back in Korea when we were interning or just starting in L'Oreal, Korea. But but, um, in general, I think that, you know, having that trust or the level of, you know, just knowing that the other person would work just as hard as you would or just, you know, the quality of work would be there, but also there won't be any issues down the road is really key. And I think it's also important, this is Christine, to pick someone who you know will be able to have that discussion with you because ideas are always better when they're vetted through someone. It's kind of like forging the sword in the fire, right? And that process always brings out something that's more elevated and more just better. And have, picking someone as a partner that you're able to have that conversation, you know, without it getting emotional or personal, but just really in the interest of making a better business idea, that would be, I think, key to picking the right partner. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think uh, you want to find somebody where you are both comfortable with having the difficult conversations and be able to, like you're saying, not get uh, emotional about it, not take it personal and and be okay having these uh, business, no difficult business decisions and making them together. So can you, um, I think this is another situation that other listeners might be in where they are they quit their full-time job and are going to go in full-time onto their in their business, uh, and then they have a partner that they're thinking about working with uh, that maybe is not in that same situation where they're maybe not as don't have as much skin in the game. Do you think that that could still work out in that kind of situation where maybe both parties don't, you know, are willing to both do the same amount of work but don't necessarily have the same like again, you know, skin in the game? Actually, for us, the answer would be absolutely not. I think both partners need to be fully committed and ready to take that plunge, um, especially during the beginning stages of a startup because there's just so much work and so much involvement that's needed. To have one person still working a full-time job, I think would just not, it wouldn't pave the way for a very productive beginning. Mm, Makes sense. Cool. So now I want to talk a little bit about your Shark Tank experience. I don't think we've mentioned this at all on the podcast yet, but that's something that's obviously a, a big part of your your journey so far. So tell us a little bit about this. Like, what was the deal when you went to Shark Tank? What was the deal that you wanted, and 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 what ended up, I guess, happening at the end? So we've both been huge fans of Shark Tank. I think many of us are. <laughs> Definitely. Especially who have running their own businesses, and it, we applied on a whim. We went to the open casting call in New York in April of 2015, and we didn't think that you know it would actually happen. I think the odds were incredibly high. It was tens of thousands to one. And when we saw the line snaking around the building, we were, we were a little unsure whether we could even get into audition. 
Um, but somehow things just kept moving along. We were called back for a second video audition, and then we were called in for filming in LA in September. So it was a lot of months in between um, where we had time to kind of really be ready to present numbers about our business and present it in the best light possible. So when we went in, we were hoping to get an investment of $425,000 for 15% of our Oh, sorry, 10% of our business. And uh, when we had the discussion with the Sharks, we did get three offers. And then the final offer was for a little bit more, a higher share of our business for the same investment amount. And you end up working with Robert, is that correct? Yes. Awesome. So how did you come up with uh, the, I guess, the deal, the valuation for a deal going into? Because I think uh, this is probably interesting to other people too. Like, How do you put a number on your business? It was a combination of our sales at the time and then the projected sales that we had for that year times the usual multiple that is applied to your industry. So for e-commerce, we did a multiple of X times whatever the sales were at the time. Mm, okay, makes sense. So you first started with an open casting call. You said there there are you know many different other businesses in there to pay. So what happens in the other casting call? Like what does you step in? Is your turn? Like what do you do? Yeah. Um, so if you make it into the studio, which is also <laughs> really hard, I think they had a cut line of uh, two hundred people or something like that. So once you're in, um, there's a few casting agents, and you just get you have to just line up in one of the rows. Um, you don't really have a choice. They just put you in a line. And then, um, and we were praying to God that we get a female casting agent, <laughs> beauty pitch. And we actually did, which was amazing um, because, she, you know, she understood what we were talking about. But um, you get to have just one minute for your, your pitch, basically. And that's it. And there's like maybe two or three questions after and you're done. So your one minute pitch has to be very, very strong and impactful. Um, really has to go, you know, have the gist of what your business is, but, you know, to your question earlier, why you're asking for that amount of money and what your potential is. So we had to work a little bit. Um, we actually worked a lot of hours to to make that one minute pitch, you know, really pitchy. Yeah, I think this is another thing that a lot of entrepreneurs want to get better at because there's going to be so many opportunities at networking events or eventually if they want to go down the fundraising route where you do have to be able to sum up your business and sell your business in just one minute. So uh, what was your process uh, to come up with the one minute pitch and what do you need to include in it? Yeah, I mean, one minute pitch and we're, you know, we were actually used to doing that um, even from back in L'Oreal because... We were always challenged to make an elevator pitch. You know, my, our bosses were always telling us, if you meet a CEO in the elevator, how would you pitch your project mm -hmm. in 30 seconds, right? So we're always trained to do that. So from, you know, the conceptual step of your work to wherever you are, you're just, we were just trained to do that in, in general. But um, to give an advice, I think it's important to come up with a few key words in the beginning to describe what your business is that um, identify what your point of difference is. So, you know, it's a combination of what it is, but how you're different. And you, you start from that approach and you'll come to, you know, a sentence that makes sense. And then um, to Christine's point earlier, you already have your valuation sort of estimated for your business. So you would have to include that number, but kind of justify how in like a, one sentence. <laughs> 
Mm. Um, for us, you know, because it's such a new startup, we really talked about the opportunity and how the growth has been so far in the market instead of how our business has been growing. So that's really our pitch. But if you've been around for a few years, then, you know, it would be best if you talk about your growth first and how it's impacted, you know, the, the consumer's behaviors or the market in general. Makes sense. So f- focus on your business first, if you can, if you have the years or you have the revenue or sales to show for it. If not, then focus on the opportunity that that's there in the marketplace. I like that. So after the the open casting, how long did you have to wait until you heard back about the uh, video audition? About two months. <laughs> we didn't think we made it because we, you know nobody called us or emailed us and you know, two months is a really long time. So yeah. we just kind of gave up. And then one day we got a phone call saying, congratulations, you're on to the next step. So that was a nice surprise. Nice. So what happens in the video audition? Is it similar to the one-minute pitch or do you have more time to explain your business? There's not a lot of parameters actually around the video piece. It's just supposed to represent what you want to tell the judges. Um, so for us, we did a day in the life of Glow, <laughs> Glow Recipe co-founder, kind of circling, you know, what we did at the office, what took up a lot of our time, what we were hoping that investment would help us make more efficient and maximize and kind of our vision for the business. And we tried to put a little bit of humor in it. Um, at the time, we were still, it was in the beginning stage of our, in the very beginning stages of our business, we were still packing boxes from our office. And this was before we moved to a warehouse. So we kind of showed that portion of our business and how much room it was taking and why if we got the investment, we would be able to do that process much more efficiently because our business was clearly growing faster than what we could need. Mm, makes sense. So is that the video that they usually show on air too when they're introducing, before they introduce the, the uh, I guess, Shark Tank contestant or do they come out and film a totally different uh, intro for you guys? Yeah, sometimes they do use portions of that video. I think sometimes they also come to your hometown and film, if you're lucky. For us, we didn't have that intro portion. Um, it was mostly what was filmed at studios in September. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, and I'm not sure how much you can share about this, uh, but you know, I know that a lot of Shark Tank uh, gets results. The the deal is done on television, but then it doesn't, I guess, shake out afterwards. Were you able to, um, I guess, solidify the deal afterwards? Um. So we're still talking about this because, um, you know, we wanted to negotiate on a few terms and it's actually a very complicated process because there are things that, you know, you don't want to compromise, but both sides have that perspective. So we're in that process right now. Yeah, I've heard that, that there's, you know, it's obviously not just here's, you know, $425,000 and here's, you know, 25% of the business. There's so much more due diligence and a lot of terms that come out uh, afterwards. Um, so, you know, after the show aired, though, what happened? I'm sure that you got a ton of traffic and all that. Like, tell us a little bit more about what that was like after the show, your episode aired. Yes. So the traffic afterwards, the peak was phenomenal. And we were, we've just, we're overall extremely grateful for the experience. I think it couldn't have been better. For us, we didn't do a big viewing party or a party because they had filmed us for an hour and we knew that around you know eight to ten minutes of that would be showing and we weren't mm-hmm. sure how it would be edited and how we would be represented. That mm-hmm. kind of control you completely give up, right? And so we just amassed a very small number of friends and family <laughs> at our offices yeah. and waited for the show to air. Thankfully, it was in a very favorable light. 
And I think it really did help to explain what our mission was and our business model was to a lot of customers in the U.S. And thanks to Shark Tank, our customer base, which was already fairly diverse, I would say around 80% of our customers are actually non-Asian or non-Korean. Um, and that number has actually become even more diverse after Shark Tank. That's awesome. So were you prepared for the, I guess, how did you prepare for the, the, the additional traffic and sales that came from the show's airing? So we talked to the Shopify team beforehand just to make sure that our hosting would be good and the site wouldn't go down during yeah. the and it did it. Um, and then we also did a lot of work on our site to kind of highlight the products that we showed during the session to create a special Shark Tank set so that it would just be that much more easily accessible, optimizing SEO, um, buying search terms, making sure that all of our social platforms were also speaking to the Shark Tank you know, airings, just so that everyone would have a cohesive experience and wherever they found us, they would be directed to our site and know where to go. Awesome. So I, I guess during the, the, the pitch um, when you did open casting and maybe a little bit during the video audition as well and then on the show, what did you um, say you needed the, the money for? Um, a couple of things. We needed it to um, really revamp our shipping process. So we needed a warehouse. We needed support in terms of resources for that. Um, we also wanted a, a larger team um, to support the marketing, but most importantly for our digital strategy. We wanted to have a very strong digital presence, and for that we needed to create content, we needed um, you know, a team member to support that, we, might, we needed equipment and vendors to help with that, so that, that was the really two main reasons. Awesome. So because, you know, the deal hasn't, I guess, closed yet, have you made, I guess, progress towards, um, the, uh, you know, hiring somebody or paying for help with content? Like what kind of progress have you or what have you been focusing on? So, um, we actually have moved to a larger warehouse, which we're really excited about. And um, we have a larger team than we used to before Shark Tank. We still need um, to improve on that um, and make it even bigger. But um, we're making slow progress here. And what did you uh, know that you needed to hire for first? Um, we needed somebody to actually help with the client services. We had someone, but we needed a team for that, um, as we have a bigger clientele now. And um, we needed a larger team that had a better system at their warehouse. So it's a third-party vendor uh, that's helping us with our inventory management and also the shipping in general. So that's a huge support that we're getting right now. And then for content, um, we kind of are creating our own ways in our offices to create YouTube videos and you know series of skincare video tutorials uh, um, in-house right now. Yeah, I, I do remember, I think on a show, you mentioned that YouTube was a strategy that you wanted to, to take. Is that still a big uh, driver of traffic for you? It's, it's a huge help, but we have room to grow in YouTube. Um, I think that's where we need the most help in terms of just digital content creation and uh, making it a very consistent message in a very frequent matter. And that requires resources. So that's something we need to still work on more. Mm -hmm. And how do you, you said that you're creating like uh, tutorials. What other, I guess, types of content do you think works well for this type of industry? I think um, our mission is, you know, to make Korean skincare, you know, very easy to use and also fun and not some overwhelming chore that you have to do in your busy day. 
So, you know, there are a lot of makeup video tutorials or makeup product videos that are very visually appealing and attractive. And there aren't that many for skincare because people still think that skincare is a very serious category and not something that you can see dramatic results on. So we wanted to kind of break that perception. And um, so we've started this skincare series called Hashtag But Skin First. And these are 30 second or, or even shorter video clips that show how fun it is to use our um, skincare products. Some of them have, you know, bubble beans and you pop them and they start to foam and it's a great cleanser. Or some of them have a mesh pad that you can just kind of rub on your skin in a gentle way and it'll exfoliate. So there's different products and formats that we're introducing through the video series. Mm -hmm. And do you also work with any other YouTubers or influencers on YouTube? Yeah, absolutely. We have some influencer part, uh, partners uh, that we've started working with. And recently we've reached out to a number of influencers to partner with us for our ambassador program, which we're starting now, actually, this week. Yeah, what are some common arrangements with influencers? I think this is another kind of marketing channel that, that uh, more store owners are looking towards, finding people to talk about their product, feature their product, review their product on YouTube. What kind of, I guess, business arrangements are, are common in that kind of arrangement? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we do um, get responses on, you know, what the fee would be and if there's any type of, you know, payment that they can get. Because I think some bigger bloggers have that standard policy now but um, you know we wanted this to be more organic and genuine we mm. didn't want to necessarily pay cash to these bloggers or influencers to promote our products um, you know in our our I guess reward for them is we give them the latest trends and and you know the preview before anybody else um, to this access for the latest Korean beauty products or innovations that we bring over to the states mm -hmm. so a lot of the beauty gurus are very excited about this access because they really weren't able to get that beforehand. And now they can. And what they can do in return is to you know, review the new products and introduce them to excite their audience. Yeah, it sounds like the same strategy that worked well for you with uh, PR, you know, obviously is working well for individual uh, influencers on YouTube as well. So what kind of content are they creating? Is it reviews or what else are they, how, how do you work with them to create content? Yeah, it's mostly reviews, but it's really geared towards um, each individual's lifestyle. So, for example, we have a, an influencer partner who is a yoga instructor. And so, you know, she loves beauty products that could sort of fit her yoga lifestyle. So she loves a beauty mist that, you know, she can spritz on before and after her yoga session, for example. So it's very naturally promoted, not in a very forced manner. Or if some Somebody is a makeup lover, then she would, you know, review some products that are great for creating that canvas for her skin to prep her skin before makeup. So everything's mm -hmm. really geared and customized towards her lifestyle and what she likes. Yeah, I like that. Rather than just showing, you know, a floating head and saying, hey, look, look at this product. I'm unboxing it. You actually get them to use it in the environment that the, that their audience is already used to seeing them in. I think it, it's uh, much more organic and doesn't come across as an ad. So how do you find these uh, YouTubers to work with? What's your, how do you identify them? And yeah, I guess, how, how do you find the, the right ones to work with? Yeah, um, there are, it's a mix of everything. We have actually um, were approached by some bloggers as well, which is really cool, especially after Shark Tank. Um, 
apparently a lot of them are Shark Tank fans, so that was great. Um, the other uh, list of vloggers, we actually reached out to them based on, you know, we asked, asked around, but based on, you know, we have some team members in our, in our offices who um, are fans of these girls, so we actually, it was just a natural thing. It was an organic list that we created internally. And then we also asked for help from our um, PR agency as well. Cool. So I think uh, Instagram is also probably uh, popular for, for, for your company. I think you have almost 19,000 followers. What's your strategy on there? How do, you, uh, how do you, I guess, how do you grow a following like that? So for in- us, Instagram is just a really great visual way to show a, a snippet of what we do on a daily basis and behind the scenes and kind of grow that connection with our customer and also preview some of the new innovations that we bring over from Korea. So it's been an incredibly useful tool for us and we've, we're getting more and more engagement and comments and likes, which we think is a great trend. Um, an example of using Instagram would be recently I was in Korea just about a week and a half ago and whatever I saw on the ground, I would be Instagramming on the Glow Recipe Instagram, my personal Instagram, and also on Snapchat, so that customers were getting various different views of what was happening on the ground in Korea, uh, kind of real time. And I think there is an appreciation of being able to partake in that experience. And then they see those innovations being brought over and then on our site. So they're kind of part of the entire curation process. Yeah, I like that you're almost priming them for the, the actual product release on your site. So there's a lot of engagement discussion that you're getting from Instagram and you also mentioned Snapchat. Is there a strategy or a way that's worked well for, for your company to drive them then from Instagram or Snapchat over to the store? I think um, there's been a lot of discussions in general about how you can drive traffic from your social media. And there isn't, uh, you know, Know, perfect metrics that we can refer to, unfortunately, but we do see, for example, emails and reviews on our site where people say, oh, I saw this on your Instagram, I was really curious about it, and that's what triggered me to try it, and I love it. And we've seen a lot of those comments, which is you know, how we know that they were um, coming to our site. And we don't necessarily say you should check it out on our site either, on our Instagram, it's just I think people know it by now. But we didn't want this to be, um, you know, again, like advertising. We mm-hmm. wanted this to be a way of, you know, immersing themselves into our journey of making our business grow. But also when we travel to Korea, just travel with us. So they're always just, you know, they feel like they're part of the team almost. Mm-hmm. You get them immersed into the content that you're creating. And then if they want to learn more about you, they'll you know, be, be able to find a way to click over to your store, either, either in your bio or just because they recognize or it's looking you up in Google. I think that makes a lot of sense. We have um, a glow in the no page on our website, which, which is really a, a, a page that has very high traffic because it's a page that... Um, we curate the latest trends there. Sometimes we test out new products and, you know, we ask for customers' feedback on them. And if some products work well, we, we decide to keep them permanently or, or not. So it's a, it's a place where a lot of people come to after they check out our Instagram or Snapchat because they know that's the latest. So these are the latest products that you are, that you've released onto the store? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Awesome. 
So um, in terms of actually manufacturing or procuring this uh, these products, I think you mentioned on Shark Tank that there's a revenue share with the creators of the products. Is that still the model that, that you're using to run the business? So for a lot of our brands that are on our site and also some brands that aren't visible on our site, we are doing a revenue share model as we kind of function as their U.S. hub. Um, and their U.S. team when we kind of direct their launch in the U.S. So we have been taking on that model because it's just much more scalable. Mm-hmm. And it's also incentivizing us and them to grow the business together. So the bigger the business is here in the U.S., the better everyone fares. Yeah, I really like this approach. I think that other listeners might might want to do something similar where it's almost like uh, it's not drop shipping. It's definitely a step above it. But then you also, like you're saying, that you don't have to, I guess, worry so much or be so concerned with the actual manufacturing. Leave it to the people that are you know experts in that space. So if someone wants to set up a deal like this and they find a, a creator or a manufacturer that's already selling a certain product, they want to do a revenue share with them. How do you approach uh, the business with a deal like this? Like, what are some terms that they need to, not terminology, what are some terms in a deal like this that they have to pay attention to? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, for us, when we approached our brands, I think we first, most importantly, set a very clear vision of what they would get from launching in the U.S. and the benefits that would come from this partnership. Because New York and U.S. Is, as a whole is hugely influential in the global beauty markets. So while a lot of Korean brands are focused on China, or the local Asian markets, um, I think it was an education piece to really help them understand why launching in the U.S. market would be so helpful for them. And then once we set that understanding in place, then it was a matter of hammering out some more detailed terms like the margin that we would be able to get from their products when we bought their products over here, and then also when we brokered kind of um, connections to major retailers in the U.S., to help them launch in a, in a bigger way, uh, mm. what that would mean in terms of cost structure. So just being very clear with them up front of how those structures would work, I think help them understand what they would get, the benefit, and then the return on investment. I see. So you're not just saying, hey, look, we're going to sell, put your products in our store. You're attaching all these additional benefits to it, like the access and a network that you have in the United States, the the understanding of the market, you know, a lot better than they do because they're not in the U.S. So there's a lot more to it than just saying, hey, we're going to put your products in our store. You're convincing them to work with you because there's a lot more additional benefits on top of just another, you know, uh, another seller of their products. So do you... Do you also ask for an exclusive partnership? Like, is that something that's important to to work out? We do do that for a lot of our brands, and the reason for that is because when we help introduce them to different retailers, um, we do need to know that there's going to be one clear channel strategy in the U.S. and that there aren't any surprises afterwards. So we always ask for that for our bigger partners. Um, knowing that we'll be able to care for them and drive their strategy and launch in the U.S. in a better way. And at the heart of it, it's really about finding these brands that have so much potential to do well in a global market outside of Korea because they have such amazing products, but they just don't know, even have the first idea of where to start. So at the basis of all of this, it's us trying to really help them bridge that gap and making sure that they're successful and set up for success everywhere. 
Yeah, I really like this model that you have set up where you've identified great products uh, in another part of the world that doesn't have as much exposure and is not marketed the right way in the home country that you are in currently in the United States. And then basically taking advantage of that. Do you think that this is an approach, like if you had to start, not necessarily start from scratch, but if someone out there wants to take the same approach as you to go find a product in another you know, part of the world and then bring it over, is it an easy process to research this kind of thing? Like how would you even begin down this road of finding a product in a country that you're you know, not, not a part of? That's also a great question. For us, I think it was a little bit more intuitive because we're such beauty junkies at the core yeah. of We've been beauty obsessed for all of our careers and our personal lives. And it, we, we just knew that there was this amazing product overseas. That being said, I think there's always ways through your own life or through your connections or your, through travel or even the internet, which is just such a great source of information, to find these products, these niche or different products that haven't really had the opportunity to come into the U.S. and be that bridge for them. What we would advise, though, is that it is always easier if it's an area that you have some experience or expertise in, um, and our business background and beauty background has been incredibly helpful as we set up our business. Yeah, it's awesome. I actually had another podcast guest on that she wanted uh, Japanese onesies, and they didn't sell them in, in Canada, where she was from, so she had to buy them directly from Japan and then realized that there is no kind of channel for people to get this access to these kind of Japanese onesies. So she ended up buying them in wholesale and then kicked off a business that way almost accidentally. I think it's uh, it's definitely something that's, I think, hard to find unless you're already really involved or really a, per a customer of that industry exactly. already. Yeah. So in terms of actually running the business, you know, what is the day-to-day the -day like for, for you two? <laughs> no day is quite the same. I bet. I mean, in general, we travel so much. Um, so that's a huge part of our day-to-day. -day. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, Christine was in Korea. I was in Hawaii, actually, for personal reasons. But, you know, we're always traveling, and we're going to L.A. soon for an event, and there's a lot going on. But um, in general, we, you know, we meet with our team in the morning to make sure that everyone's on the same page with the latest updates and, and plans. Um, and then we make sure that our team is on top of the content creation. So we get involved, but maybe not too much. Um, Christine and I get involved more on uh, PR um, elements. So we speak with editors or, you know, magazines. Um, we visit their offices sometimes or just, you know, build relationships with them. There was, there have been a lot of interviews recently, so we were focused on that, um, such as this one too. And then um, we also get on the phone with our vendors in Korea. So this is actually a challenging part of our job because of the time difference. Um, so we try and call them at a reasonable hour, but it tends to be at night of our time, which is their morning time. So that's, that's towards the end of the day. Um, but during the day, there's a lot of meetings and people that, that we meet. 
Yeah, for for people out there that do have to travel for business, just like like you two, do you have any tips for making progress on your business when you're uprooted so frequently? It, it sounds like a big disruption. At least if I had to go through it, I I feel disrupted. I couldn't get into a flow of working on a business. Do you encounter that same issue? And what are some ways that you've found that works well to combat that? Yeah, I mean, this is where you have to be super uh, multitasking, but at the same time, you know, we have to also delegate a lot of the job to the team for the day-to-day operations. So what we like to do is, um, you know, we sit down together as a team, the entire team, and make sure that, you know, in the weeks that we're away, everything um, is planned in a very concrete way. So everyone knows exactly what to do um, almost every day to get those projects done. Um, we would obviously be still hooked um, you know, with emails and phone calls with the team to make sure we approve things and you know, the directions are going the right way. But in general, um, the best way is to plan ahead of the time um, in detail as much as possible and make sure everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. And in terms of running the business, I'm sure you probably rely on apps and tools to to keep it uh, you know running, especially when you are not in the office. Are there any apps or tools that you recommend that that you use to run the business? So we've been using a new app. I guess we're still in the testing phase called Asana, that helps keep lists in order and everyone's to do list in order. And it's also, of course, you know, very easy to check on the go on your phone. So that we are constantly kind of keeping abreast of what's going on in the office. Yeah, like Asana, it's great for, like you're saying, uh, collaboration between multiple members on a team, especially if you all have different to-do lists. Uh, any any particular like Shopify-related apps that, that you rely on? For to-do lists or for managing the team, not so much. Mm-hmm. But for Shopify in general, we, do, we are testing a few apps for loyalty right now. Um, so we haven't really reached a conclusion in which we, which app we might keep. Mm-hmm. But that's also another kind of area that we're looking at because th- we think CRM and retention is incredibly important. Makes sense. Cool. So what's uh, what's in store for the future? What plans or goals do you two have for, for the remainder of this year? Yeah, um, this year uh, we have some exciting plans because we just launched our exclusive brands that we were carrying at GlowRecipe.com and Sephora. So um, Sephora has been a great uh, partner for us for our brand incubating business and now we're expanding and really have become um, you know, an official partner for Sephora to launch new brands. So that's really going to be our focus for the second half especially as we roll out to new doors and expand on the dot-com business. Awesome. Um, yeah, so that's like a new vertical that we're expanding on. Um, at the same time, for our GlowRecipe.com site business, um, it, you know, it's expanding and growing. So we want to make sure that um, you know, we maintain this growth, um, actually accelerate it if we can, with new CRM programs and um, different types of uh, marketing elements that we're using and we're starting to implement. So we're looking forward to that as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Christina and Sarah. So GlowRecipe.com is a site. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out they want to follow along with what you're up to or your, your travels? Yeah, of course. So at GlowRecipe is our tag for Instagram and Twitter as well. And then we're on Snapchat under GlowRecipe as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Christina and Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. 
To start your store today, visit Shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.